Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing podcast. With your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everyone? Austin, how you doing, man? Things, uh, my voice is a little bit dead. I'm a little bit exhausted. We just had our Rise final in-person networking event yesterday. Um, how did you think it went, Mayu? Did you have a good time? Uh, we tried out at this new venue. For anyone that didn't come out, like one of the things that we always want is like a bar and like just the ability to like have beers while like talking to people. Uh, which yeah. in downtown Toronto is stupid expensive because everyone wants you to have like a minimum spend of like $5,000 or something like that or 10000 And real estate investors are pretty frugal, right? So we never really want to commit to that. But we found a venue in, okay, what, what was that area? Don Mills? Danforth, Danforth. Danforth. So it's East York. Yeah. You know, parking was a little bit of a pain. Getting there was a little bit of a pain. Things to kind of improve on next time. But the event was solid. Like different levels of like investors come out. You'll have people that like are buying like 20, 30, 40 unit apartment buildings. And then you'll have people that are looking to buy their first properties and stuff like that as well, right? So why the storm of people? There's always good conversations that come out of it, right? Like I think everyone still wants to get into a multifamily space. So we were still talking, I was talking to a decent amount of people about that. The numbers just being harder to work. You got to syndicate a, a larger amount of funds for like the down payment, right? Um, unless you're sitting on a million, $2 million in equity. My personal stance on that is essentially anything like under 10 units, the deals are like mediocre, like maybe, right? If you like search hard enough, you'll probably find something. But it's really the deals that are like 20, 30 units and above, which is like four or five million plus, right? That's usually where you're seeing some like creative deal making and like some decent deals and opportunities, right? Uh, we had people, most of we talked to, we talked to uh, someone doing fiveplexes in Toronto that did CMHC exits. Um, you and I both talked to them. That's Jaden, if anyone's interested. Um, we talked to someone that's doing staycations, which I can't remember what they called it. Um, but basically international students that are coming over for high school. Um, you enter into contracts with their parents and you're kind of renting out a room to them in like a top-notch like school district area, right? So that was pretty cool and unique. A, a wide assortment of people just doing a bunch of shit, man. So it's always pretty cool. Um, okay. and, and, you know, a lot of people are ultimately like struggling right now as well, right? And and that's perfectly fine too. Like no one's really alone on that. But what are you, uh, any other cool conversations that you had? Yeah, um, very similar to sentiments as to what you echoed there. Uh, like it just wide variety of strategies I was speaking with someone who uh, purchased a resort actually in the Muskoka area oh, yeah. uh, with the long-term potential of doing the development down there. Uh, they actually saw the same resort that you and I were looking oh, at yeah. as well. I bought that up. He's like, oh yeah, I, I saw that as well. So it's funny to see people operating in that unique, it's a niche space for sure, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. They started off investing in Toronto and then looking into resorts and it appears that it's, it's still fairly cash flow positive. One of the main things for me, when looking at a resort was is one, I always felt like there needs to be someone on site, especially when you're dealing with a resort more so than an Airbnb. And yeah. he seems to just bump those myths because he's operating completely virtually. And I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. But I mean, if someone's doing it successfully, it must be working, right? So like, that's the thing with coming to these networking events. I had something that made sense to me, but in practicality, you know, you might not need to do the hurdles that you're, you're processing and building in your head. Yeah. Good time all in all, man. Had a good time. So aside from, from our event yesterday, obviously economy. So interest rates, that was a big discussion, actually. Just everyone wants to kind of talk about interest rates. You can kind of get into that a little bit. 
Uh, I was telling you right before this, uh, right before we started recording, it looks like unemployment came out. So that's a slight increase. GDP came out. That's finally like being acknowledged as being down. What's your prediction for next year? I'm sure everyone asked you yesterday what your thoughts are on interest rates and stuff like that. I'm curious what your thoughts are. I don't think you and I have actually talked about this in a while. I don't like making predictions, honestly, because I'm I'm far from sort of qualified from doing these things, right? Don't no one take my advice or my word for it. All nah, I will say we're, gonna, we're, we're either gonna buy or sell based on what you think <laughs> right now. So go for it. Yeah, again, I'm I'm not an expert, so just let's make that clear. All I've been following is I, I guess general consensus people are expecting a rate cut next year, right? It's more so timeline how aggressive that rate hike is gonna or a rate cut's going to be. It looks like most people are believing that it's going to be sometime in spring or in summer, and it's going to be quite an aggressive rate cut, right? So some economists and highlights are expecting as much as 200 basis point, which is that's drastic, that's drastic, right? And I think people are looking at that sort of as, hey, I mean, if we cut 200 basis points, this is like all, all great news. Not, not necessarily, right? If you're cutting that aggressive, that should imply that something has broken in the system. Or something significant would have driven those rate cuts, right? Other than that, from the real estate perspective, I think like I think the most of the conversation is is that it, our price is going to increase or, or decrease next year. Seems like most of the banks are saying that they're going to decrease. Even Remax, they're always going to say it's increasing, but they said it was going to decrease as well. But here's the thing: is that if rate cuts drastically, yeah. it's like almost all bets are off, right? Because like Canada is just so sentiment driven into real estate, so I don't know. I don't think prices are going to drive up next year, but who really knows, right? Because this year I didn't think it was going to drive up as well, but the beginning of the year just absolutely ripped when you have a lack of supply and low rates or rates in the mid fours, people just feel confident jumping back into the market. Yeah, no, it's true. I think um, we'll just have to kind of wait and see what happens. I do think like if you're someone obviously with capital, uh, you're in a unique situation to kind of step back and kind of take take advantage of the market. We'll kind of have to wait and see what happens. I would expect prices to go up a little bit just because of people's affordability and borrowing capacity will go up if rates come up, uh, if rates come down, right? But uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention is is about the pre-construction space. Just very briefly, we keep on talking about it, but I was speaking with a lawyer yesterday. And every time I speak with the lawyer, this conversation comes up, but it just goes to show you. This real estate lawyer was saying that, uh, yeah, the pre-construction space is a disaster right now. I was like, look, I hear this again and again and again. Like, how many files have come across your plate? He's like, at least 45 files a week of people who can't close. At least. That's a drastic number for one individual to be getting on their plate. So you can only imagine widespread, how much pain people are feeling in that space. Uh, the last thing I wanted to mention is, is that, so on my Instagram, I don't know if people saw that, but I posted something about provision for credit losses on, on the banks, right? So long story short, it's like the bank setting money aside in the case that loans go bad doesn't necessarily mean all the loans are going to go bad, but they're just setting money aside to be prudent. A lot of the banks missed analyst expectations, right, on, on provision for credit loss. And Scotiabank was the most prominent. It's 50% higher than last quarter. But it's a provision. That, it's a provision. It's based on expectation, but it's not yes. an actual loss. It's not an actual, no, exactly. Yeah. It's a provision, yeah. but it is telling you. Like, yeah, that true. is a 50% revision is pretty significant. And just in general, falling above analyst expectations about I started falling on the wrong side, I should say, of analyst expectations also isn't a good thing as well. So RBC missed it. Uh, Scotia missed it. Um, I think it was TD missed it. B, uh, CIBC didn't, I think they actually performed fairly well. I guess they're not underwriting as aggressively mm-hmm. for that, for whatever reason. 
But it's just going to be the general trend, right? There's more and more write-offs happening right now. People are expecting the worst and the banks are expecting things get a lot tighter. So they're going to they're going to put money aside for that. Anyways, enough rambling from us. Today, we have Andrew Parashis. You guys might have heard of him from Property Hustlers. They're all over social media and he's a seasoned real estate investor who's been in the game for well over a decade. He jumped into investing with uh, sort of guidance from his parents and from there, He's been doing that full time, skip university and jump straight into the real estate grind. Since then, he's been doing multiple fix and flip properties. He does multifamily investing. He does multifamily flipping. Uh, He has a property management company with over 800 plus tenants that he's managing. He has his coaching program. Again, he has his own podcast, Property Hustlers. He's doing it all, man. And when we're talking about learning from someone super experienced in the game, it doesn't get much more experience than Andrew. He's been investing again since the early 2000s there. So in this podcast episode, we're going to learn everything from flipping in this market, managing properties in this market, dealing with tenants in this market, and, and so much more. You guys definitely don't want to miss this episode. And if you enjoy it, hit us with a like, subscribe, share with a friend. I think we have like over 125 reviews on Spotify now. We want to get that to 140 before the end of the year, if that's possible. And without further ado, let's jump right on in. Just a heads up before we get started, this podcast is all about providing you information, not financial or legal advice. So if you need the real deal for your situation, hit up a professional. We can't promise you our information is always up to date or accurate, and we're not responsible for any investment decisions you make based on it. Market change, information change, you know the drill. Anyways, thank you for hanging out with us responsibly. Let's jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Andrew Parashis from Property Hustlers. Andrew, how's it going, my man? It's going great. You pronounced my last name perfect. I'm so impressed. (laughs) (laughs) I tried. I tried. I practiced once or twice. We haven't had a flipper on here in a while. But Andrew, I know you do flipping, but you also do a bunch of stuff. So why don't you give everyone a quick background on yourself and then we'll kind of dive into some of the more relevant stuff that you're seeing today. But yeah, give everyone a quick background for yourself. Yeah, no, a uh, quick background. Um, what it, my main focus and the, the expertise that I tend to uh, talk about has largely to do with flipping. Uh, for us, it's always been uh, a big revenue stream, a big uh, money maker. You know, everybody always talks about uh, different ways to make long-term money, but in real estate, uh, I'd like to focus a little bit on what can make a larger chunk in the immediate the long and short about what I do is me and my partner, we will flip any properties that are one to four units and we will buy to hold it through the Burr method, anything that is five units and up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Love okay. it. Let's get into sort of your background and how you got started into investing. And then again, we're going to talk into some of the more relevant things because I know you're still very active today. So you started investing at a very young age. Walk us into how you even discovered real estate investing and how that beginning part of the journey has started. And then we'll almost fast forward to what you're up to now. Yeah, absolutely. The short story is my mom told me to get into real estate, so I had to. And basically, she was the one who started going to all these like rich dad, poor dad events back in the day. We're talking about like 2005. So I've been in real estate for quite a while right now. Seen a lot of different things. Basically, I was out of high school and I, I had worked in construction with my dad. I saved enough money to buy a car. And I told my mom like, hey, this is what I'm going to buy. She got so upset with me. And she kind of like rung me up and told me like, yo, you're not going to do anything stupid with your money. Let me tell you what to do. I've been going to this event. And I thought she was going to this event where she was signing up for a scam. But as it turns out, she was on to something. So she got me into my first triplex in Hamilton in 2005. And 
wow. I'm there. Yeah, I know. It was, a, it was a long time ago, right? But thing is, like, there was different, there was different challenges. Like, people, I tell people that, like, the first property I got was, like, 90-odd thousand dollars, right? And uh, it's, like, uh, people view that as, like, oh, you're cheating. You went back in time and got a property early, right? But when we got that place, there was, like, Hamilton, you think, people sometimes think Hamilton is bad today. Hamilton was really bad back then but she was looking at these properties and she's just like hey they can't really get any cheaper they're not going to get cheaper so like let's let's pick some of this up so she got me to pick one of those up and then i quickly realized how it got easier you know she she laid it out to me i wasn't too inclined towards uh school you know everybody was getting ready to go to university and she's asking me she's looking at this she's like you know you don't really like school i don't really think you're gonna have a good time and like what do you want to do for a living you already have a head start in construction i'm into real estate i can teach you these things why not put them all together and get you rolling. And you know what? After I got my first property, I was flipping properties with my brother because we're both in construction. And we realized, hey, Kate, there's money here. So the long and short is like, we just happened to get exposed to it early. I'm really grateful that my family had influence in this and everything just picked up after there. All of a sudden I realized I had credit, I had equity, I had an asset, I had rent. It was, it was crazy. It's like life became financially easier after that point. So your mom actually convinced you not to go to undergrad? Yep. That's funny because my mom is a uh, Singapore born Chinese. So <laughs> that's unusual yeah. for Asian parents, right? So, but yeah, she laid out the math. Right. It, it's a bet one way or the other. And I guess the argument is you could always go to undergrad later as well. So it ended up paying off. Obviously, 05, like starting at that time, different time, different environment. But I'm just curious over if we take it to like 2020, over like a 15 year period, what did you do like predominantly? Was it all like actively like flipping? Was it the construction business? Was it buying investment properties? I'm just curious how you handle that 15 year period. So we do have one strategy that still stands true today. Uh, it doesn't seem to waver too much. It's you flip three properties, we buy one. Okay. So people talk about cash flow, right? And once upon a time, like the cash flow systems worked, right? Where you buy a property and you could actually make some money. And today, the most that you may be able to, like not even today under current interest rates, but let's just say like a year or two years ago, you could buy property where you can make cash flow a couple hundred bucks. But let's say any maintenance issue happens and your couple hundred bucks is just gone, right? Actually, your whole year worth of profits is just gone by like your toilet breaking at a rental property, right? So it's not really true cash flow systems. You can build them, but you couldn't necessarily just buy a turnkey like very easily. Like you're finding, you're scoring gold if you happen to. But we would buy and flip properties because we could early on find that we would make a minimum of like $25,000, $30,000 per flip in like a period of three to four months. And this is like including the buy, the renovation and the waiting for it to sell. So we would be turning equity that we were pulling out of properties through an active form of income, through an active form of uh, real estate investment, where we're essentially buying, turning properties and selling them. But this is only one to four units. So we're focusing on the consumer class. Now, when you're saying like, what have we done that's working today? So I feel like this that's happening right now, I feel like I already went through something relatively similar, like in 2008, because that's when the market turned and everything just grinded it to a bit of a halt and people were stuck holding product that they couldn't move. It wasn't that bad here, was it? Like I was just going into undergrad, so I have, I have no real idea. Uh, other than like my family didn't really feel it, right? And I'm assuming most people in Canada didn't really feel it. And anecdotally, like like the historical records seem like Canada wasn't that impacted, but you were obviously in the market, so you would probably know a lot more. Like how bad was it really here? 
Well, the, again, it's what, the problem was that the projections, when people get very zealous with what it is they're expecting to get back and how they're leveraging themselves, your things just don't pan out when you're only optimistic, basically, right? So there was fear in the market. And because there was fear in the market, people were just not overbidding the way that they were before. It wasn't this frenzy of like, hey, I'm not going to get a home, right? Before, um, a couple of years ago, the whole thing was that even though... Properties were getting so expensive, interest rates were low, and people were just like, can I even get it, right? Even though everything was so expensive, now things are cheaper, and no one's touching anything, right? So it's there. there's just this zeal going on, and people are just anxious to buy property, and then it just fear washes it all away, which is similar to what happened. It just slowed down. It, it didn't hurt as much as, let's say, it's hurting people today. But the thing with house flipping is that if you're experienced, and I don't, I don't encourage people who are completely inexperienced to do this type of thing in a market that they are unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. It still works today. You just have to adjust your numbers. It's kind of like the Burr method. The Burr method arguably has been dead for like a, a while because the numbers don't work on the refinance. If you refinance, you're essentially covering debt with debt. And then you're definitely not cash flowing in the Burr method. Right. Right. So understood. Yeah. Yeah. So if you do that today, it doesn't really work, but it works if you adjust your numbers accordingly. So Burr method, house flipping, any other stuff can work. You just have to adjust to the current market that you're in. So the numbers just have to be lower. Really, it's not so much in house flipping about the renovations that you do as much as it is the deal that you find. It's always in the deal. Pretty much everything in real estate is all in the deal. And any renovations you do pretty much add some kind of flexibility to it. Like when we renovate properties, we always renovate them in a way that allows us to hold them if we need to. So if we're flipping properties today, we just need to make sure that we can flip a property that we can add more units to and rent them out. Because rents are crazy right now and rents are just continuously going up. And if you think about it in some places, it really does look like the rents are going in a direction where we're going to hit that point where people who are renting are going to look at it and say, hey, rents are almost pushing mortgage prices again. right? They're getting high. Yeah. You're mm-hmm. really able to fully cover everything, especially when you've got two units, which at that point, why not just buy a house and rent out the basement, right? But I, I'm curious. So if you, if that's your approach, um, are you doing it in large cities? Are you doing it in small cities? Because arguably where rents will cover prices, uh, your mortgage payment will, will be in small cities, right? So are you doing the flips in like Hamilton or are you going out to, well, what's small after Hamilton, like, like St. Thomas or like something like that, right? What's kind of the strike? Well, end, I guess, would be a big one. Think Catherine, so on and so on, right? Yeah. So we look at positive population growth. So it doesn't matter whether you're house flipping, burying, uh, it's just long-term investing. I wouldn't recommend areas that have negative population growth. So we do certain basic real estate investor stuff where you just look at the data and look and see what cities have are investor-driven and what cities are people-driven. So Welland, for example, has negative population growth. I wouldn't flip over there. Branford also has negative population growth. It's not my preferred cup of tea. I know a lot of people go there, but it's investor driven. Hamilton, I like Hamilton because Hamilton, despite what people may think about it, it's an actual city. It's not like uh, certain places where they're giant, endless suburbias and they're just built off of uh, the urban sprawl is crazy and it's just gone forever. Hamilton has a localized infrastructure. And they have a business district, clubbing district, they have entertainment, they have proper transit, like it is a city. So it does have a long way to go. And in terms of flipping in different markets, yeah, we flip in Hamilton, we'll flip in Toronto, we'll flip anywhere really where you can find a deal. We recently did one in Scarborough and it's just a matter of finding a property that 
can offer you something in the area. Certain areas, especially in Toronto, it seems like they'll sell no matter what. Even today, they'll sell. There's still enough demand, especially in Toronto, because the foreign investment especially isn't gone. And people are just pivoting on one property and pivoting into something else. But we've done it in Scarborough, we've done it in Barrie, we've done it in Markham, and it just really depends if you can find a deal. And these things, when we do find good deals, they tend to be off market. So let me ask you this, in flipping, especially in today's environment, let me know if you agree or disagree, it's important to not only look at the quantitative factors, but the qualitative factors as well. Whereas when a market's hot, you can flip on a main street, you can flip on a less than ideal property, but it will still sell because everything is getting multiples. But now if you're flipping a property that let's say is backing onto a highway or on the highway, uh, not on the highway, I guess backing onto a highway close by, so on and so forth, like sound pollution, things of that nature, you got to be careful because even if the numbers will pencil out, doesn't necessarily mean that it always sells. That being said, what are you looking for in today's market? First, numbers wise, two, qualitative wise, that makes you feel like this is a good flip opportunity. Okay, so that's a good question. Okay, that's a very academic question that I feel like it's hard to illustrate this without writing it down on the whiteboard, but let's try. So um, let's talk about numbers. I think the thing that most people do wrong is they, they look for deals and they're unsure about why they're finding a deal. And that same reason why you may be finding a deal may be working against you should you sell. Okay, so that's, that, that's the first thing. So that should affect how you do your numbers. So let's just say that you find a deal today. If you find a deal today, it's still going to be a supply and demand principle as to why you're finding a deal. So let's say you're finding a deal because interest rates are high today, the buying power is low, anybody who's selling today might be desperate and they're being forced to drop their prices and people are finding it difficult to qualify for these properties even with the prices that they are because of the interest rates, right? So you have all these factors working against you, but you're the seller, but you are therefore as a buyer able to find a deal. Now let's say you want to flip today. If you want to flip today, you're going to buy the same property. Are those factors, when you pretty up the property and you make it more expensive, are those factors still going to be working against you? The answer is yes. These factors are still working against you. So when you make a property more expensive, do you really think you're going to be able to sell it today if that is the obstacle that you're facing? The answer is probably no. Now, when you're flipping a property, it's not just about a matter of cosmetically flipping a property. What you're doing is you're making a property easier for somebody to buy. So what makes it easier for somebody to buy? Augmented income. So if you're, if you're adding units, making the property more versatile and making it so that somebody can buy this thing and now think, hey, I can add, if you're adding an extra two units into it, somebody can say, hey, I can live on the main floor, rental upstairs, rental basement. I've got money. It's a safe place. So you're aiming for what the people need today. At some point, they just needed something pretty. At some point, they just needed something that with garages. At some point, they needed a man cave. Today, they need extra units. We have a housing crisis, apparently. So, you know, people need places to live. So that's it, that area. Now we are talking about main streets and location. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. I don't know if you want to narrow down that question a little bit. Yeah. I mean, what are, what are things that you look at and be like, this is not worthwhile flipping for me because of X reason, right? Not necessarily, again, quantitative, but qualitative things that you see in a property. Oh, if it's a hundred years old, I'm not even going to run the numbers on it. Like, are there certain factors that you look at? It's like, if it hits these criteria, I'm just going to avoid this property altogether. Oh yeah, tenanted, tenanted properties. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm bothered with that. Landlord tenant boards a mess. More, more so than a mess is a bit of a joke right now. It also technically means you can score an amazing deal 
on people who are in desperate situations who are trying to get rid of rental properties with tenants that won't pay, but it's almost like the deal would need to be, you'd have to be giving it away for free. And even then, you know, somebody might be less inclined, but rental properties are challenging because it's going to take too long for you to be able to work on it. We avoid certain big ticket items when we're looking at flipping, like you don't want to have to do the roof, you don't want to do furnaces, you don't want to have to do major electrical overhauls. You want to focus ideally on things that somebody is going to see and will be receptive to. Just as an example, a furnace might cost you five, six, seven thousand dollars to repair. It costs us about five, six, seven thousand dollars to do a whole kitchen, like a big and nice one. So what's going to visually give you more of a return with respect to whoever's looking to buy the place? Somebody might appreciate that the furnace is important and necessary, but in terms of visual appeal, that will have more bang for buck in terms of the dollar you're spending on flipping. So that's an example of it. If we're looking at flipping something, it gets very specific where we start to look at what we're flipping. Are we doing permanent flips where we want to expand a driveway and make it a duplex? If there's a tree there, we avoid that because it takes a long time to go through the city to get permits to remove the tree. That's just an easy example. Depending on the demographic that we're selling to, we look at the neighborhood, obviously. Is it conducive to whatever it is that we're trying to do? Like you can get very specific with it, but the big ticket items ones, if anybody's looking to flip properties, that's something to consider. But honestly, what we look for, that's some of the stuff we try to avoid. But in terms of what we look for today, we mainly focus on space and availability to expand and add more units, you know, because Toronto, the government is making it easier to add more units. So if we buy property today, if you have a single family home, it can be two units, three units, and in some cases, four units. So that adds a lot of versatility. And if you want to expand, that is a good way to do it. So if I understand this right, Andrew, you're, you're focusing on properties where you can add units or do cosmetic renovations, right? It sounds like doing cosmetic renovations is more around a quick in and out. You're not trying to take on tenanted properties and so on. The conversion properties, it sounds like is because in a worst case scenario, you could keep that property as a, as a multifamily rental, even if it's only like a triplex or a fourplex, like it's something that can maybe cover costs. Yes. Like today you have to at least make sure it has to just be part of the plan. Like uh, some properties that are being flipped today, as long as they can be rented out two units and you can break even, mm-hmm. then at least you can wait this out as long as you think that things are going to improve and you'll be able to sell it later. Like right now, I don't recommend anyone selling a property right now if they can avoid it. But if you're flipping a property and you can rent it out or do something with it to hold until, let's say, the summer, you're going to have much better options. <laughs> yeah, I read this interesting post there just to sort of expand on this topic where, I mean, multiple exit strategies is very important, especially when it comes to flipping, right? When you think about who is going bankrupt in today's market environment, it's either going to be people who took on too much leverage, particularly private money, going to be people who are flipping because they need a short exit strategy. And maybe to, to your point, like adding a secondary income could allow you to hold it. But a lot of flippers are doing like million dollar products plus and, you know, they would either have to sell it, eat a loss or Lord knows if, if they don't have enough money, then they would have to declare some sort of bankruptcy or pre-construction investors. Right. The similarity between all of these is, is that they're short term investments. None of them are necessarily long term. So if you're going to get into any of these strategies, yes, there's short term potential, but you need to be also able to hold for the long term if shit does eventually hit the fan here. Right. Like I've noticed, at least on the burning side, it seems like the properties that no one is making a move on are the properties that require a lot of capital renovations, right? So 
while I understand that cosmetic renovations are great, like I would love to get into cosmetic renovation, quick in, quick out, because it requires minimal capital and capital right now is key, right? Like those with cash are, are taking ample advantage of like so many different opportunities out there, right? What type of properties today do you see the single like highest, like the, the most frequent deals in? Is it the tenanted properties? I know you, you personally avoid them, but is it those type of properties? Is it the properties that require a shit ton of renovations? Is it the ground up development, right? Where like people are demolishing and like putting brand new like fourplexes and stuff like that in Toronto. If you were to like identify a single asset class as the most lucrative asset class where you can find the most amount of deals is a commercial multifamily, whatever it is. I'm just curious what you think there. So today it's going to be residential. Residential, single family, single family? Yes. Yes. Everybody who has a mortgage is coming up for a new because yes, while it is house flippers who, who let's just say novice house flippers who just got into the market, they're caught holding the bag. Their bills are going crazy. They're unable to let go to the product. They might be having to take a loss on these properties. This is a one. Mar- this is one market, but they're small. The real pain point is all these mom and pops who bought a property three years ago or so, and they are, have mortgages coming up for renewal. Right now, the market is getting slammed. There's so many properties hitting the market, and there's not enough people with the capacity to buy. There's not enough people who are brave enough to buy, and these properties are all just sitting. So people are, right now, 50% of Canadians uh, who are holding mortgages are under 2.8%. That means that they're going to be jumping to something around five or five plus. Go- their mortgages are going to go, are going to become very expensive. Not everybody is able to save. If you look at Canadian saving rate, it's not around $1,000 a month. And in many cases, these mortgages are going to go over $1,000 a month plus in terms of extra cost. So that's going to completely obliterate their savings. When you factor that in with the increased cost of everything, gas, groceries, you name it, these people are not necessarily going to afford their mortgage and they want to compromise. So a lot of people who were homeowners are looking to shift into renting and these people are now going to get desperate and they're going to look at the amount of equity they have and they're going to say, am I willing to sacrifice a large amount of equity in my property, sell it and avoid being put in the position where the bank may take my home should I not be able to make payments? That is where, unfortunately, deals are right now. Now, politically speaking, you know, things might happen. Trudeau might throw a Hail Mary and do something crazy that might make everybody, you know, vote for him and uh, he's going to try to correct things. But, and there is a lot of talk about interest rates coming down, but it's going to be like, it takes the elevator going up, it's going to take the stairs coming down. You know, it's going to be a very slow decline if we have hit a point where things are going to come down. A little bit of UBI goes a long way, right? I know Halton was uh, uh, proposing in the introduction of UBI, coincidentally, which was, I'm going to move there and retire. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, no, no, that, I think that's a good answer. I think you, uh, I, I'd have to agree. Like I think single family residential is where um, people need to move. Like if you're selling in the single family residential space, it's because you need, you need to move. Estate sales are still popping up. Uh, I lost out on one or we were trying to go and bid on one yesterday and it sold like the morning of, right? So yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and so on the property management business, not to kind of jump in, often do you have anything else you want to ask on the flipping side or? No, I think, I think we covered Oh, sorry. It looks like Andrew wanted to comment on something. No, 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 no. I think, I think it covers a lot of it. Uh, I, if we're going to wrap that part up, the only thing I just wanted to say that is flipping, honestly, it's, it's very capital intensive. And right now, it, unless you're seeing an amazing deal, like you really have to become clear as to what is a deal today because people are always stuck in old numbers. Don't jump into a property where the numbers aren't absolutely stellar. Like you should feel a little embarrassed about the deal you got on the property in order for it to be a reasonable flip. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.
Yeah. As in like, oh my God, I can't believe I got this property for this price, okay. right? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, the, you, you have to be, if you're not, then it, it might not work out. If you feel like you just got a normal deal, you might not be able to sell it. Yeah, it's tricky because I, I have quite a few clients that are like more, uh, like mortgage clients that are flippers. Um, and it's tough for people, like similar to myself in Austin, like when we were buying a bunch of investment properties, it's tough to just sit back and go, okay, now I'm going to buy one at like a six month or like eight month period, right? And so you're always like looking for the next deal. And at some point, if flipping is your active income stream, you might start to convince yourself that a deal is a deal when really it's not as great, right? Like, especially if you've been looking at like 10 of these and you've like lost out, like it's, it's tough to kind of keep going at it. I'm curious now, like jumping ahead to kind of the property management business, because you obviously set up your own property management business. Tell me about how that's running. Like, are all of your investment properties in one like central area or are they kind of scattered across like South, Southern Ontario? Um, yeah, just curious, like what led the, to the decision to set up your own property management business? Uh, so we set up our own property management business uh, initially. So I did this with my business partner, Ping, who you are going to talk to actually, but um, I set this up with my business partner, Ping when the two of us were in university and uh, we did this because we saw that there was a need for it so it, as it turns out property management is not a very regulated industry you don't need to be licensed in order to do it if you're working directly for landlords and it seems like it's hard to find good property managers um, there's a natural progression of property managers in terms of when they will take on new clients and all the ones who become good eventually they stop taking on new clients like we stopped taking on new clients a couple of years ago and because we felt like we grew it to a, a point where it was just too much, it became unwieldy. So we decided that we were going to stop and we we're going to take advantage of our network as it was. In terms of why we started it though, we couldn't hire our own property managers. Like it just seemed like, you know, anybody that we asked for, we wasn't doing what it was that we wanted and there was a huge need for it. So we started this with student rentals back in, I think 2017 or, or something like that. And then we grew the property management from there. And today we're managing in and around 800 tenancies. And it's quite a lot. It's too much in my opinion. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just good infrastructure, right? There's a lot of money in real estate and in real estate investing, but there's also a lot of money in real estate business because property management is a catalyst line of work. Everything goes mm -hmm. through it. You get in touch with construction workers, real estate agents, you get in touch with mortgage people, landlords, you name it, you're in the center of everything. And that ends up being very powerful if you can figure out a way to capitalize on all these areas where transactions are happening. Mm -hmm. I just did some quick math. I'm like, that's got to be a million dollar business plus. <laughs> Easy. Yeah, <laughs> no, $1,500 a month, even if you're charging 8%, like you're sitting north of like 1.2, let alone like all the other stuff that I'm sure you're making. So I'm curious because property management has a tarnished name in like, I think myself and Austin, we grew up in this uh, real estate investing community where it was always property management's $20 an hour job. And is that really the highest and best utilization of your time? And so on and so on. I know also you have a question, so I'll let you go right after this. But I'm just curious, like, is that the reality of the property management business? Is there decent margins? Does it come down to systems and tools today that improve the profitability of property management? Or is it kind of a low margin business? It's technically a low margin business if you are thinking like a real estate investor. If you're trying to make a living, it can be a pretty good living as long as you are a versatile person. Okay. So it's not real estate investor money. If somebody is trying to get rich off of this, it's not going to get you rich. Can it make you a very comfortable living? Yes, it can. Do you have to be a versatile person? Absolutely. Because if you like property management is one of the most, actually, maybe it is the most unappreciated 
line of work in real estate where you have to be one of the most capable people in order to do it. So you have to be highly competent and highly unappreciated and low paid in order to do this kind of thing with respect to everything else. So I agree to that. I, I was just gonna say, I feel like that's where real estate investors are too, man. I'm like highly unappreciated, highly underpaid here. I'm fucking cash flow negative every month, but <laughs> no, go well, on. <laughs> by the way, like that, that's a whole other thing. Real estate investors, uh, I think sometimes are the ones, especially who are underpaid. I mean, technically that's, that's, uh, that they have control, a lot more control over it. There's not a market rate. Like investors don't get paid. Investors make reap returns, right? Property management is a job. So if, if you compare in the sense that, um, property managers will deal with an array of things where you can really do well with it. If you're starting your own business is if you if you grow to a certain client base and then you capitalize inwards. Now, what do I mean by that? So I regret greatly having grown the property management to the size that we did. We should have pivoted inwards a lot earlier. The, what property management really did for us was it, get, it got us connected with a whole bunch of landlords. Just an example, off-market deals. Sometimes we find people who will come to the property management company and say, hey, I have these tenants, this is the problem, and I have so many issues here and I don't know how to solve them. Sometimes the way we make the biggest amount of money as a result of having the property management company is that this ended up being an off-market deal for us. So they don't necessarily have the mental fortitude or the money to resolve their problems. And we can come in and say, hey, we can take these problems away from you or let's just sell your property. When they have so much equity in the property and they're being stressed out by a tenant, sometimes it's worth it for a lot of real estate investors to say, you know what, I'm just going to let this go and I can be sitting on a couple hundred thousand dollars instead of stressing out over this couple thousand dollars that this tenant is costing me. That was a good point. Like one thing that we, uh, when we, Mayu and I were in a coaching program together, they say networking is a contact sport, getting leads is a contact sport, speak to property managers, pest control people, speak to contractors, speak to anyone who touched these properties inspectors because they see deals fall apart as well. People who see properties on a day-to-day basis, because you never know who's going to have a deal or a potential lead for you. And, and it seems like it's worked wonderfully for you and your property management business. Now, I kind of want to take things still on the property management topic, but take it outside of the business perspective on operating the business and more so like practical sort of uh, trends that you're seeing in that space, because you are managing 800 plus properties or units or people or tenants. There are probably some trends that you're noticing now in the market, whether that be more N4s and non-payments of rent being served, whether that be rents sort of stagnating, sort of the data that I'm seeing is rents are actually flatlining in this part of the cycle, right? Not decreasing, but the rate of increases has sort of declined now. Um, What sort of things have you been seeing in the portfolio that you're managing um, because I think that our audience can get good takeaways on what's happening with other landlords as well and their portfolio. Generally speaking, what are you seeing in the 800 plus uh, tenants that you're managing? Um, like what sort of trends can you identify from that? Okay. So um, basically less turnover is the biggest thing. So people who have uh, a reasonable rents are extremely reluctant to move. And we see this all across the board, uh, even from the student rentals and the single family. So we separate the classification and the trends that we notice between students and single family homes. Single family homes will still fall into like, when we're talking about single family, we just mean adults, like who are renting regular places, not students. Students, you still see some turnover, but not as much as we used to. People are holding on to the rooms that they're renting. So if they're renting rooms at like five, $600, they're definitely holding on to them. We see rooms now going for $750, $800 a room now. It's crazy that they're pushing that outside of Toronto. 
Uh, we do see less turnover in regular single family based or apartment condos, that type of thing, uh, rental units, because it does look like people are going to see at least a 30% increase minimum in some of their rents, if not 50%, they've been there for quite a long time. So we do, we do see that. In terms of defaults, I wouldn't say we're starting to see more defaults on rents. It just seems to be relatively normal. In terms of deficiencies or anything like that, we usually see about a 3% across the entire portfolio. Yeah, that, that that's mainly the stuff that we see. I'm not entirely in the operation, so I'm looking at this <laughs> at, a, at a distance in terms of just what's happening at a high level across the, across the board. How about like leasing out? One thing that I've noticed, because I'm sure that you are still buying properties for your own personal portfolio, I've noticed that it is taking months for me to find the right tenant to lease out to. And sometimes that means even taking a haircut in what I projected my rent to be, because I just don't want to throw in someone with 500 credit score in there. Are you noticing the same thing with, with some of the vacancies? So that depends on where you are renting. So in Toronto, we find that any properties that we're renting out, I find everybody's qualified still. But the minute you exit that market, I find that, yeah, you're going to have to vet a little bit. So we haven't always gone for the top shelf in terms of application strength type tenant. Uh, it's always been, we went a little bit lower. Uh, we find that there's more stability in that tenant. So we're still able to find that tenant. However, it definitely is taking longer and just depends how stringent your criteria needs to be. So we have compromised certain things on the criteria at a high level. So let's say the criteria might be that, you know, a credit score is one thing, but let's just say that the criteria might be amount of people, like sometimes now families are putting more people together in order to make things more affordable. Technically, that's a good thing. We're still a little bit cautious when it comes to people's self-employed income and how we scrutinize it. The income to debt ratios are still important. We are finding that we're we're taking about two two to three months to get a solid applicant, meaning that there we might have a move in between three to five months. So those things are definitely taking longer. But overall, there is still a lot of tenants. There's still evidence of a housing crisis with the amount of people that we get inquiring on units. I always wonder where do people live. Interesting. So. Oh, dude, I, I totally agree with you, right? Because like with some of the people, like we get a lot of applications, don't get me wrong, but we also turn down a lot. And sometimes I look, I'm like, man, like where are these people going to end up living? Because no reasonable landlord will accept the application that they put forward unless they've downgraded from like a one or two bedroom. And now they're going to be applying for bedrooms, like shared unit spaces. And that's people don't want to live there. That That's what it looks like it's going to come down to. Yeah. The one thing we have been accepting a lot more lately, and we've been seeing people volunteer this, is bank statements. So there's been a lot of people who are able to afford property because they sold their house and they have money in the bank and they don't necessarily have a job that indicates they can afford it, which is interesting because we're finding people who are moving into negative cash flow positions, slightly negative cash flow positions with the rent, but they're doing so and we, they, we accept them because they can demonstrate that they have the ability to do this for like many, many, many years because of their savings. Uh, another interesting trend that I, I can't remember, I don't think, I don't know if it was you also that said this to me, but something about like how hotels and motels are now starting to offer like monthly stays, right? Because at some point, if you can genuinely like rent a motel for like a hundred bucks a night or something like that, and some of these big cities or like the surrounding areas, right? Or even like cottage country and some of these smaller towns where someone was telling me Port Perry did, oh yeah, one of my clients, yeah. They'd rented out a two bedroom with utilities included for like $2,700 a month. Right. That's basically $100 a night, which is oh, very what? close to like motel rates. Right. 
So I, I think a lot of like hotels and motels are starting to kind of switch what they're offering from like a short-term rental to a little bit more of like a medium to long-term-ish state. Obviously there's no kitchen, stuff like that, right? But it'll be kind of interesting to see how that fills the gap. Now, Andrew, I do have one more question for you on the property management business. So 800 units, I'm curious how the business grows, right? So for example, you and your business partner, Peng, I believe, right? Is Peng's the name? Yep. Yeah. Yep. You guys probably self-managed stuff, I'm assuming, until you got to like 50 or 100 units, right? And then yes. who do you first hire? And then who's your second hire? And how does the business kind of grow? For anyone that's looking at this and going, hey, like, I might want to have a property management for my own business, or maybe I want to start a business like this in whatever market they're located in, right? I'm just kind of curious about that growth process. Okay, that's a great question. Okay, first of all, um, before I dive into that, I just want to say that um, with respect to property management, if anybody's listening to this and, and people are interested in it, um, I think property management is a great business to get into, whether it's as a side hustle or as, as a form of getting into real estate because it's low barrier of entry. And it's technically speaking, if you're reasonably competent, it's easy money. Okay. Now, the thing is, if you're going to, if you're somebody who wants to get into it, you should look at your own skill set. And based on your own skill set, that's what will influence who's your first hire. Ideally, it's going to be an administrator. However, if you are somebody who's only able to operate in the capacity of an administrator, maybe the first person you're going to look at, and again, depending on the portfolio you're managing, might be somebody who is out on the field and doing some kind of work, right? So somebody who has a bit of a hybrid role, whether it's maintenance or whether it is um, having people skills. Pacifying, depending on the population that you're dealing with, is a difficult thing to hire for and also extremely necessary. Being able to have conversations and pacify situations and talk to people and figure out how to resolve situations as people, not just through emails. Emails are going to be one of the worst ways to resolve situations with uh, certain tenant populations. Sometimes it's an in-person conversation. So if you're somebody who wants to stay at a distance and manage properties, you just have to make sure you're managing the right properties that will be receptive to that type of thing. Okay. So administrator would be very important and somebody who's going to do all the documenting, communication and organizing, right? If you are somebody who is more frontlining. If you're somebody who doesn't want to front line and you want to be on the back end, hire somebody who's going to front line. But pretty much you need somebody who's going to be versatile. Administration skills are extremely important. It's like 80% of the work. And then 20% of the work is some kind of maintenance and talking to people in person and checking out properties. Let's see. Let's see. Yeah, I uh, really appreciate you sharing those details. I think it's, it's always a challenge to find the right people, right? Property management's a tough business to be in. So whoever you're going to hire, got to make sure that they're in it for the long haul with you as well. And they understand the vision because it's not, it, it's, it's, as you mentioned in the beginning, it is severely underappreciated and whoever you're going to hire is going to be needing to take abuse from all sides almost. <laughs> um, yeah. Moving on from here, I don't think if, I, I don't think we talked about it, but Andrew, you're also a coach as well and wanted to sort of open into your coaching mind a bit. One of the big problems that a lot of investors are facing today, even some of the most experienced investors, is properties that are turning cash flow negative. In situations like this, how do you recommend cash flow management? Either, and, and it could be, let's say, actually, let's, let's break it down into a couple of questions. One, people who are cash flow negative. Two, people who are looking to continue to scale their portfolio, but are having trouble to cash flow management because maybe wholesaling income slowed down maybe flipping income slowed down. 
maybe whatever income stream they have is slowed down, but they still want to acquire or they're otherwise to feel like they're sitting ducks. Let's talk about cash flow management and being cash flow negative. Like what can people do in this situation in today's market? Okay. That's yeah, that being like it's it's very difficult to answer that broadly, but let's let's narrow it down to somebody who let's just say it has been an investor for a while. So if you're an investor for a while now and let's just take somebody who still has a job, just first thing to understand is that if you are deciding to make cuts, there's only so many cuts that you're gonna be able to make before you cut out everything you possibly can. And you know, you start to compromise things like your own lifestyle and, and things like that. You don't wanna you don't wanna be cutting that out too much. Um, the things that you want to focus on is whether if you're trying to go over the wave, you should really look at how you can go through it. And when you go through it, you want to look at the versatility of your properties. Unfortunately, the answer is going to be that you have to figure out a way to spend a little bit more money in your property to get it to a point where it can perform in this market, right? Whether that is adding more units or whether that may be even just selling your property, pivoting into something else. People are always happy to take the wins when things are good, but people are not always happy to take a loss. People will look at these losses now and find them completely unacceptable. But if you've been investing for a while and you really zoom out, you'll probably find that you're still net positive in the grand scheme of things. So make a pivot if there's absolutely no way. Sometimes there's not a good answer in terms of just making something that's not working, working. Sometimes you just need to accept that it's not working and you have to adjust. You made a bad decision. You're in a situation that you can't manage. Leave it. Your losses move on. And that's that's the hard truth that I feel a lot of people are not willing to accept is that they made a bad investment. People thought that they could buy property and that all these decisions they were making when the market was just making everybody money. People thought that they were making good decisions. And even today, they still decide they want to hold on to them and justify keeping them when really it's just anchoring them and losing the money. No, that's very true. Very well said. I, I think, you know, even myself in Austin, we sold off a bunch of properties because there's ultimately, there's like three types of return that comes in real estate, right? And if you're not having the appreciation, and if you're not really having cash flow because your mortgage has gone up, you've essentially got a bunch of debt equity just kind of sitting there, not really earning your rate of return, right? Um, so, you know, I definitely echo a lot of what you said today, Andrew. And I think uh, at this point in the podcast, we usually like to ask your guests two questions. So the first question is, any piece of advice that you have for a newer investor in today's market? Absolutely, actually. So in today's market, the stuff that we I talk a lot about is the difference between real estate entrepreneurship and real estate investors. Okay. Investing, understand that is supposed to be by definition passive. If you are being extremely active in your investing, it's probably not the best type of real estate investing if you have another job because you're going to quickly find yourself getting overloaded. You're going to quickly find yourself working your regular job and working all these jobs that you've now factor in as part of your real estate investing, you know, allegedly real estate investing. Now, if you clarify the difference and you start to become more entrepreneurial, you'll realize that there's still a lot of money in real estate, especially when it comes to real estate business. And this is where I tell people that if you operate in real estate business, there's so many checkpoints to make money, whether it's through as a real estate agent, making money on the transactions, a wholesaler, being able to score a deal, property manager. I, hell, I see landscapers who are absolutely crushing it right now in real estate. And they have their business operating. They're connected with other real estate investors that are connected with people who are looking to sell properties. And, you know, if you're dealing with real estate investors on a deal on the daily or people who just own properties and need services, one, you can make money. And that also gives you a deal flow. All right. So these are all things that I feel that if you're looking to side hustle into something, you have a job and you want to expand, get into something to do with real estate business. It's not always about making money and then buying a property because sometimes I see people do transactions 
And you know, the people who make the most money, it's not always the real estate investors. Sometimes it's the realtors, the mortgage brokers, it's to bring the contractors and house flipping. They make the most amount of money sometimes when the real estate investor loses. So there's money to be made, but you might want to look at what you can offer and expand into real estate, into something business-like with real estate. And you become more entrepreneurial than strictly investing. That's a good point. Cause you also minimize your downside risk with those sort of ventures as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's true. Uh, and so I agree that I guess the second question for you is how do you see your business growing in the next, call it like two to three years, right? Like what's your, what's your primary area of focus? Right now there's a point of stability that we need to focus on when it comes to the portfolio or we need to just make sure that it's holding steady. But it's funny because the, it seems like the Canadian real estate investing strategy today is invest in the U.S. So that's the new method for Canadians. There's no longer sure, to sure. invest in Canadian market. So we, we have been shifting our focus to, to certain properties in the U.S. and expanding a little bit over there. Otherwise, it's just a matter of anything we're doing here has a lot to do with pad downs and expanding only when it comes to true deals, right? We have our coaching business. Our coaching business is really as a point of network. So what we found is that all the best people that we've worked with, we didn't hire them, they came to us. And we find that people who, through our coaching network, that elevate and grow to a certain point, eventually we end up working with them. And that ends up being our growth point. So our growth, our next stages of growth largely has to do with the network that we put together and also the market that we look at investing in. And right now it looks like there's a lot of opportunity in U.S. market. Awesome. Like just brought this up now. Would have, would have, would have spoke one today. <laughs> but we've got thing on, uh, I don't think it's today, but the other day or next week or something like that. So maybe we'll, we'll breach that topic with them. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. 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 That sounds good. Awesome, Andrew. Really appreciate you jumping on the podcast. You're a wealth of knowledge. I really like the unique approach that you take into solving these different real estate problems. It's almost like a consulting-like approach breaking down and simplifying the problem and then trying to find creative solutions around it. If people want to connect with you, listen to your podcast, um, or just follow your journey, how could they best do so? The main platform is Property Hustlers. You can find that we have a website and there's also a YouTube channel. We put out videos all the time talking about what it means to be a real estate investor in Canada, what it means to be a landlord, what it means to deal with problems and how to resolve them. Otherwise, you can find me personally on Instagram. Uh, it's just andrew.parashis. And uh, I put out content all the time on things that I'm doing and what it means to be buying, flipping, and dealing with rental properties in Canada. Perfect, perfect. So all of that will be down in the show notes below. If you guys enjoyed this episode, share, like, comment. Uh, helps bring great guests like Andrew out. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.